0: Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. It's our prayer that God would use this to stir your affections for Jesus, that the spirit would work through his word being expounded as you listen to this message. As a reminder, podcasts and audio and video are great, but they aren't a replacement for the local church family. And so if you're part of Redemption Hill, a reminder to come and join us. If you're not in Washington, DC, we would love for you to get connected to a local church where you can be loved and cared for. If you'd like to give to the ongoing ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can do so at our website, redemptionhilldc.org. Thanks for listening. Father, thank you for the chance we have to be together. Thank you for your work in Christ. That is the reason that we get together each week. We thank you tonight that we have the chance to open your word and that we see the way that your church can function and how things fit together. And we pray by your spirit you would speak to us, that you would open and sharpen our minds. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. For four years before coming to D- D.C., Alyssa and I had a house that was not in this area, but a typical like, suburban house with a yard and a garden. And when we first moved into it, we were all excited about that and excited about the idea of growing our plants. And I could remember my parents having gardens, and I like to cook and thought, "This will be great, and'll we'll we can do yard work and housework. And then we moved into that house, and I realized that I hate all of those things. Like I don't like doing yard work, I don't like gardening. I don't, like in Genesis 3, the curse on the earth is that it'll bear thorns and thistles and make it hard to garden. I don't want anything to do with it. And it, I realized that I didn't like it and so now we live in DC and I have a three foot by three foot square of dirt in front of my house that is all I am responsible to cultivate and even that is completely unkept. And so, it, it, But there's one plant that flourished because I don't think you can kill them and that is whenever we grew tomato plants, the tomatoes went crazy. Funny thing about a tomato plant is that they can 't just grow on their own. you need to have a cage around them. For some of you you 're like, "Yeah, um, but this was news, and so they have these wire cages, and you plant the to- little tomato plant in it, and as it grows, you need to make sure that it stays in that and that cage supports the tomato plant so that it can grow in a healthy way now. I'm not the first to make this parallel, but within the church, this is actually a metaphor that can be helpful for us is that as an organization, we are all about the work of health and growth of the organism of the church and the the, the living thing that is a local church. But there are also structures and support systems that need to be put in place so that that vine can grow in a healthy way. There needs to be a trellis for the vine to grow into the passage that we get into today gives us the first glimpse of a church that was growing fast in the book of Acts, and we've seen, uh, we've been in the series through the first seven chapters of Acts, we only have two weeks left um, in this first section of Acts this spring, and then we're going to move on to some different series over the summer. But we've seen so far that as the Spirit of God came down and filled these early Christians, things grew quickly. That the Apostle Peter preached his first sermon and 3,000 people came to follow Jesus. And then we read in Acts 4 that, that the movement had grown to 5,000 people. And, so, and people were living self-sacrificially and beautiful things were happening in this community. And what we see in today's text is that, that as that, that was growing, that they needed to think through some structure to make sure that they could facilitate the continued growth of what God was doing. And so we see today that in a church, every member is needed. We're a body living together and everyone has a part to play. We see ultimately that in Christ, the spirit of God fills us and empowers us to serve. So this is what we read in Acts chapter 6 if you have a Bible you can open it there with me if not don't worry It'll be on the screen Um, if you don't own a Bible We have Bibles available back on the book table you can grab one and take it home with you It's our gift to you tonight So here's what we read in Acts chapter 6 Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the twelve summoned to the full number of disciples and said, "It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word." When they said the when, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and prayed, and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so here, the church is growing. The number of disciples is increasing. Things are growing fast. And these are, this is good growth, too. It's healthy growth. They, they, people were coming to know and follow Jesus. And in that, they were tying into this community. The word of God was advancing through the church. And so as we look at this text, there was then an issue that came up and a complaint that came up. And the text this week that we're in is, is kind of like an, an in-house, like an in-the-family text. where they, they called the first ever church business meeting together. And we had a completely unanimous vote, which is amazing. And so, but, and so in that, we're going to see some of the dynamics of how the church and how we as a church think about how we're structured. And so if you're, if you're here tonight and you're not a part of Redemption Hill, particularly if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to understand what we're getting into tonight is a little bit of family business as we look at this and a call and, and charge to those who are part of the church family. But I don't want to get into that before making clear that the, the reason that all of this had happened and that they were having these tensions and what had happened to shape this community. Because what shaped this community, first and foremost, primarily, was a commitment to what we call the gospel. It was that these men, these 12 apostles that are leading this church, had walked with Jesus through three years of his ministry and seen him heal people and forgive people's sins and cast out demons. And then they watched as Christ was arrested and killed he was crucified, but what what shocked them at the moment was that on the third day, he was raised from death to life, and each one of these men had committed their lives to proclaiming that this Jesus, God in the flesh, took our place and went and went to the cross to die in our place, bearing the penalty and the, and the cost of our sin. He was raised from death to life, and in his resurrection, he shows he has power and victory over sin and death, and so the good news that these guys were proclaiming is that in Jesus, Jesus, we can actually be forgiven. In Jesus, we can actually be saved and and brought into God's family. And then God's family is is shown in local church families as we walk alongside each other. And so the spirit of God shaped this early community and they were living self-sacrificially and giving to each other and gathering together regularly and, and selling off property to be able to provide for each other's needs. And so that's the context here. And our church is part of that foundation. The, the Christian church that continues on to today, we really only have one message to proclaim, and that's that our hope is in Jesus. And so that's the foundation here. And as they were proclaiming that message that was infusing the community, even within that, they faced some, some pretty significant opposition. And this is now the third wave of things that, were, that, that threatened to sidetrack the m- mission that the apostles were called to. And so we've seen this, that, that they had faced two types, two threats already. They faced threats from the outside, the leaders of their city and, and the people that had killed Jesus also had arrested the apostles multiple times by this point. They had beaten them and strictly warned them, don't, you've got to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And so they were facing outside pressure. But But in the midst of all that outside pressure, their movement continued to grow and they continued to be devoted to what they were doing. And so that didn't derail the mission of Jesus Church. Then we saw that they faced internal conflict is a couple, a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira, threatened the integrity of the church and they faced the corruption of, the threat of corruption internally and of hypocrisy. But they weathered that storm. Ananias and Sapphira were removed from the church community by the Spirit of God, because they were struck dead on the spot. Now they're facing a new challenge. And it's a challenge that that any growing community or organization faces that seems particularly true in churches. I think churches can be particularly susceptible to it. They're, they're facing a new level of complexities in the ministry and the work they're doing. Um, and and as things are growing, they're facing the reality. See, now I'm fighting pollens and my throat's all dried out. I really just hate plants. That's, that's what it comes down to. Like nature is, is trying to kill us and we need to escape it. Um, <laughs> adventures in the great indoors. <laughs> um, all right, so they were facing a new threat here. As the church grew and the community grew, there were people who felt like they were slipping through the cracks and who indeed were slipping through the cracks. Beyond that, they were facing internal conflict between two groups of people in the church and, and the complexities of ministry in this growing community and the, the, the pressure to meet everyone's needs and to, and to come alongside everyone in the church in a way that was, uh, was helpful and appropriate, that all of that pressure was, was leading to dis satisfaction in the church that was threatening to divide it. And so a little bit of context here. A complaint rose up, we read. In those days, the disciples are increasing in number, and so these are the things that we pray for as a church. We, we want to see growth as a church, not like false growth of people just showing up, but we want to see people come to follow Christ and be a part of what we're doing and join us on his mission in our city. They're seeing all those things, and we're seeing, we've seen how they stood in the face of opposition, and we're still preaching in the public square, and everything seems so great, and then all of a sudden you see, and a complaint rose up. A complaint by the Hellenists rose up against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, there's some nuance here for us to try to unpack. There's some debate scholarly over who the Hellenists and the Hebrews are. Um, here within the church at this point, it was, it was almost exclusively a Jewish movement. And so, you, there, this was likely rooted in language, but a bigger issue than just language. On one hand, you have Hellenists, the Hellenists were g- Greek Jews, and so these were people who were part of the diaspora, but had come back to Jerusalem. And so, in, in the invasions of Assyria and Babylon into Israel, the Jewish people were, a lot of people were, draw, were pulled into exile and enslaved in exile, and so some had, had returned, though some, it's in the diaspora were spread throughout the Roman Empire and in immersed in Greek culture. These people were returning to Jerusalem. There was a Zionist movement in the first century, so they were returning to Jerusalem. But as they came back, they brought all of the culture and thought and the, the lenses to see the world of a Greek mindset, even though they were ethnically Jewish and by bloodline Jewish. On the other hand, you had people within the early church, most of the apostles fit into this category, though not, not all necessarily, where they likely, their primary language was Aramaic. And, and in the mindset that they, through which they interpreted the world, their interpretive grid was more of a Hebrew approach. And so they, they were native to the area. And, and so we're not even at a point in the early church where the Samaritans and Gentiles have been brought into this community extensively yet. They haven't crossed those lines yet. And even within one same ethnic group, there was division that was brewing because of the, the vast cultural differences between these groups and the Hellenistic Jewish people were saying, hey, we are being marginalized and, and put on the sidelines of this community and the, our widows aren't receiving the same care as the widows of those who are the Hebraic people. And so that conflict was brewing, that that discontent was stirring and they had a real concern that needed to be addressed. Remember we read back at the end of chapter 4, Barnabas had sold a field and given it, laid it at the apostles' feet and people were selling their things and laying the cash at the apostles' feet so that they could distribute it to anybody who had need. And so there's a dispute when money gets involved in how much goes to whom and what the need is. So there's a real issue in the church. And there's also a problem here that we get cued into in the language that Luke used, the author used, in, in saying how this rolled out. There was a problem in the way that things developed here. You notice the apostles, they, they lead with some wisdom and some grace here. And they say, all right, hey, as soon as they get a hint of tension, they say, come on, everybody get together. They run to the tension, they deal with it, they bring it out. They say, we're not going to let this simmer behind the surface. And this language here where it says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews is language that is is really a a key that's a consistent theme in the way that this word and this verbal root is used throughout the Bible. This is the same language that's used in Exodus 16 and in Numbers 14 when the Israelites and the people were, were headed into the wilderness under Moses's leadership and the people were murmuring against Moses. Complaints were simmering through the people and against the leaders of the people. That's and it's the same language here this murmuring, there was murmuring and backroom talk against the apostles, blaming the apostles that people's needs weren't being met adequately, saying they're not paying as much attention and as close of attention as they need to be to my group. And so within this, this I understand this may be hard for particularly our American ears to accept, but this is the same verbal root. And, and this is the same that we read in Philippians, Chapter 2, as well, when the Apostle Paul talks about this warning to the Philippian church, and he says to them, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and pure children of God, shining as lights in this world, he goes on, holding fast to this word of life. And and in this section, Paul's talking about the unity of the church and having the same mind among you, which is Christ. But that grumbling and complaining is the same language that's used here in Acts 6. And so there's layers of problem here, as there are any time that there's relational friction, right? Relational friction is never as simple as a concrete thing. There's all kinds of relational baggage that we bring into things. And so here, it's setting, we can see the layers of this where you have people grumbling and murmuring. There's backroom talk and conversations that seem to be infusing through this church. And it shows up with a real issue, a concrete issue, that there's people that are being marginalized, um, but it's it's not being addressed directly. And so the apostles here say, okay, let's get everybody together. Again, we have a church business meeting. Let's talk it through. And what we get is a foundational text for understanding how the church works. And how we should be structured. And so tonight this text, usually most of, most of the time when we're gathered together, we're, we're doing work on the vine, not the trellis. Tonight's text is really about the trellis and the structures that hold up the work of the church so that it can continue, continue in health. So we see three things tonight. And in all of these, we see that we are empowered to serve. The first is when we recognize needs in the church, meet them. It seems simple enough, right? Now, the leadership of the apostles here is wise and spirit-filled. They didn't let this undercurrent grow. When the tension rose up, and we, this is, we have a tendency to do this in relationships in general, don't we? Like when, some, when we have a friend who does, does something or says something that we don't like, most of us don't jump on it right away and address it and address the relational hurt. We are much more prone to just say like, nah, I don't want to get into the conflict. That conversation is going to be too hard. That could could just be like a whole can of worms that explodes, and so we just kind of push it aside because it's harder to deal with the conflict. The apostles here don't fall into that temptation. They go right for it and say, hey, Let's get together, this is what we've heard. They summoned the full number of the disciples and they said it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word of God to serve tables. So here's a plan, pick out seven men that are full of the spirit and wisdom and we'll appoint them to this task and we'll continue to devote ourselves to these things. They say, they say this is a real issue. Let's make sure and ensure that somebody is gonna have oversight on this. Let's make sure that the, the concrete aspect of this complaint is taken care of. But do you notice something here? The apostles don't say, this complaint has risen, we'll step in and take care of it. Like, this is a key moment for the early church. These are the 12 apostles. These are the the men chosen by Jesus to lead his church. This is Peter, the rock on whom the church would be built, who had been imprisoned two to three times by this point and was preaching boldly in the, in the public square, and, and there could have been a moment here for them to take even more of a grip of control and authority within this growing community and to say, okay, this is our responsibility and we're just going to take care of everything, and to be the only ones that did the work of ministry in the early church. But they don't do that. They don't, they don't apologize here. They, there's nothing that they had done wrong. They say, that's a real need. There's a need here that needs to be met, but the call that they have is, it shows that the leaders of the church don't exist to do all the ministries of the church. We are all disciples of Jesus. That's, I mean, that language, that the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, they are not the only disciples of Jesus. All Christians are followers of Christ, and and so they call them together and say, we're all in this together. We all have an essential part to play, and the apostles were clear, we have a clear calling from Jesus. He had called them back in chapter one. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They had been called by Jesus to be the ones guarding right doctrine and preaching the gospel, preaching the resurrection, preaching their experience of Christ and the way that he had trained them to do that work of ministry, and they needed prayer because they needed, they needed to be turning regularly in the, in the example of Jesus, who went regularly to withdraw and to spend time in prayer. But That doesn't mean other things aren't important. It doesn't mean that other aspects of the church and other work in the church is unnecessary or that it's less spiritual. It does mean that for the apostles here to neglect the responsibilities of the primary responsibilities they had for prayer and ministry of the word would have been disastrous in the early church. Distracted leadership could have led to doctrinal error, it, would have led to, it could have led to deeper division. It certainly means that they wouldn't have had the, the freedom and openness to do the things that God had called them to do. They understood what a pastor named Eugene Peterson has said when he, he said, How can I lead people into the quiet place beside still waters if I'm in perpetual motion? so the apostles were clear. They devoted themselves to these things and they called together and they appointed leaders. And there's something I want you to see here, a nuance that you may not catch otherwise, uh, that all seven of these names, all seven names that are listed here, which um, they're all Greek names, every one of them. So you have Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. You have Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. Every one of these names is a Greek name, not a Hebrew name. You know, why is that significant? Well, look at this. This was a conflict between the Hebrew and the Greek Jewish people in this body. The apostles call them together, everybody together, and say, hey, the. the the Hellenists, the Greek side, is feeling marginalized. And so what do they do? They appointed leaders, and all seven of them are representatives of the group that felt like it was, it was being pushed to the side. All seven of them were there now to help make sure that all of the widows of the church were going to be taken care of. They, they, all seven of them exhibit wisdom. They're filled with the spirit to do the work of ministry. You see that, that it's not just that the apostles are filled with the spirit. It's not just that preaching of the word takes a spirit filling. It's that the work that these men were being called to required wisdom and that they were filled by the spirit of God, gifted by the spirit of God to accomplish that work. See, we have such a deeply ingrained perspective on what the church ought to be. We've been conditioned, if you grew up in the church, you've been conditioned to look at the church as something that you go to and, and the, the people that work for the church and the leaders of the church are the ones who do the work of ministry. And that's where you'll even hear language where people will talk about pastoral ministry sometimes and they'll say like, well, when did you feel your call to the ministry? The ministry, we are... We are all called to ministry. We are all called to serve. Pastors and missionaries are not some like upper class or top tier of Christian. And in fact, it's kind of the opposite when you read the New Testament. A calling to pastoral ministry is a call in Ephesians 4, we get that calling defined for us. Now, we're not in the apostolic age, but there's principles that begin in Acts 6 that then we see fleshed out over time as the church develops. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, we hear why Christ has given leaders to his church. It says, he gave apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So why are there apostles, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers? with shepherd is just, that's what the word pastor means, is shepherd. Why does Jesus give leaders to the church? Not to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. He gives leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. That means that pastors, my job in this church is I'm support staff to help you to do the work of ministry. Every, if you're a member of Redemption Hill Church, you have been called into the ministry in this church. And most of you that work other jobs that are outside of a church context, like you can make, a, the, the, I would encourage you to draw the redemptive path and timeline. Think about In the new heavens, and the new earth, how how God will be a part of renewing and restoring all things, and even the work that you do will be a part of that renewed and restored work. I have no idea what pastors are going to do in eternity. Like, I'm kind of out of a job. You're not going to be coming to me saying, hey, pastor, can you open up the Bible and tell me about Jesus? Because you can go talk to Jesus. So, pastoral ministry is, exists to equip the members of the church, the members of this body to do the work of ministry. The apostles saw this right at the beginning, that, that pastors and elders, the apostles here have a very particular biblical calling and it, there is a calling to work hard and there is organizational aspects in management. There's things that, that we need to do as part of the work we're doing and I don't think the apostles were only doing prayer and ministry of the word. But I think what they said was really important for us, that, that they needed to devote themselves to those things, that if other things were making it so that they didn't have the ability and freedom to keep prayer in the ministry of the word at the center of what they did, then they were failing the way Christ had called them to. Prayer is essential for every one of us. I mean, it is, H.B. Charles is a pastor. He says, prayer is our Christian duty. It's an expression of submission to God and our dependence upon him. For that matter, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our dependence on God. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. The apostles knew that. They knew that, 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 that as soon as they lost their time and margin to invest in prayer, that they would be working out of their own abilities, their own strengths. And we saw how that went when, before the Spirit came. And it meant that they all abandoned Jesus on the night he was betrayed and killed and left him in the dust. It meant that they misunderstood what Jesus was teaching. And even though he told them over and over and over again, hey, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be arrested and killed. And on the third day rise from the dead, in the middle of it, they were like, oh my gosh, he just rose from the dead. How did, what? We, didn't ex- we didn't see that coming. They knew what it was like to work out of their own abilities. And so they were fostering a continued dependence on the spirit of God to in their work and in, this, in the early church. The ministry of the word shapes the church and still does today preaching and teaching and leading groups of people and ensuring right doctrine and right belief within the church community, ensuring a faithful witness to Jesus and his resurrection. That's an important and central aspect of what we do. And so there were distractions that were coming up, and it wasn't that caring for these widows was unimportant, but the apostles weren't going to take the fullness of the responsibility to ensure that it happened and instead said, no, we're in this together, guys. Somebody's got to step up. Now, in our church, as things have grown and developed over time, there have been points where we've had to do similar things and say, okay, there are distractions that are taking up so much of our elders' time that when we're together, we don't have time to pray together. And so what can we do so that we have time to ensure that we're invested primarily in prayer and ministry of the word? And so as the church grew, we've, we've had on the issues of ongoing care, and we've appointed community group leaders. Tonight, we commissioned four sets of community group leaders. That's an incredible day. That is, those are those those four sets of people who have been officially—they've been trained, they've been evaluated, they've been—we've had others identify them as being filled by the Spirit and full of wisdom, and now we, as a church, are laying hands on them to pray for them and say that the ongoing, regular care for the members of this church has exceeded the capacity of our elders alone, and so our community group leaders come alongside our elders in caring for the people of the church. I honestly think our community group leaders are a closer match to the deaconate appointed in Act 6 than most of our other deacon positions. I don't think these guys were just waiting tables like we think about waiting tables, where it's like you carry the food from the kitchen to the restaurant table and hope for a tip. That's not what Stephen was doing. They were appointed to ensure the care for widows in a culture where women had no ability to own property or earn money. They were caring for them and ensuring that their needs were met. This was a ministry of hospitality and pastoral care. And so we have community group leaders that help us with pastoral care. We, we have organizational leadership that we don't want our elders caught up in all of the organizational decisions. We don't want our elders investing intense amounts of time managing finances. So we have a treasurer that oversees our finances. We have a staff team who's paid full time to carry out organizational aspects of the church so our elders don't have to be overwhelmed by those things. We have all kinds of ministries that happen in this church. I think we did a tally recently and somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 people are required every Sunday just to make Sundays happen. That's a lot of people. And within that, we have deacons who organize these teams that step up like Stephen did as the leader of this team. And so we have deacons of kids ministry that make sure that our kids are cared for, especially child care upstairs for preschool age kids and then also a kids worship teaching time for school age kids. And they knock it out of the park. They're killing it. And, but it, our elders aren't the ones that are designing curriculum and crafts for our children, not because it's unimportant. My son walked in this morning with a paper plate that was cut in a spiral and said, Dad, look, it's a snake. I hold it up and people are healed. And I was like, that's amazing. I wanted to take him to John 3 and say, buddy, don't do you understand that this bronze serpent that was held up by Moses in the wilderness was a precursor for Christ, that now he is the one who has to be lifted up so that people can be healed. And But we didn't have time because I was trying to sing. Um, and, but, but I mean, like my kids are being cared for and taught because we have people that are investing into their lives. We have people that lead a greeting team and make sure that as people come in and out of our church, they're welcomed by smiling faces and that there's setup that happens for them. There's a, a deacon of set up and tear down that make sure that the facility is, is ready because we don't own this place. And so we need to set up and tear down aspects of what we do every single week. There's um, deacons. I mentioned we have a treasurer. We're about to appoint a deacon of mercy that's going to help our church to identify needs and be more invested and more strategically engaged in mercy ministry in our city. We have a deacon of security that you probably don't know exists. And that's great. We don't want him to be real showy. But he's got a team that tries to make sure that we are safe and is watching, watching over the church every service, every Sunday. We have these teams that, if I've forgotten anybody, you're still loved and necessary. But the point is that we're all in this together. We all need to step in and serve together. And when there's needs, we need to see those things, recognize those things, but don't turn to grumbling. Don't turn to murmuring against the leaders of the church. Instead, Step up. Help supply the need. The apostles here bore responsibility for everything that happened in the church, and they delegated authority to others to meet the needs of the church. The same way, we, our elders bear responsibility for everything that happens in Redemption Hill, but we have delegated authority to leaders and members to meet ministry needs so that we can be increasingly devoted to the ministry of, word, of the word and prayer. And so, if you see a need, don't grumble about it. Don't call up or email or text some of your friends and raise a groundswell of support in your complaint. Make sure that other people have your back and are on your side before you figure out how to come and confront. A lot of those things we can slap all kinds of spiritualized language onto, and at their core, it really is just gossip. And it really is toxic and will, and will spread like an infection. And instead, recognize the needs, think about ways to solve it. Think about ways that those needs can be met, and then come and talk to us. If it's in your community group, go talk to your community group leader. If it's beyond that, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of our elders. Talk to us directly so that we can evaluate whether this is something that our church needs to meet now and how we can meet it now and what we can do and how we can get behind you and the things that you're passionate about. It doesn't mean that everything is going to be an issue at the level of what we see in Acts 6, but let's talk about it openly and not allow murmuring to spread through the community. The need here was for hospitality, for strangers to be welcomed into the community, and, and that's one of the, the, the types of ministry we value most deeply. It reflects something of the gospel. It, it shows off God's love and grace, and so there was a need for hospitality, and the apostles realized there's no way that a group of 12 of them could meet all those needs for hospitality, so they appointed others to be able to carry it out as well. Now, I do think there's something here, just as a quick aside, on calling that is probably worth... Just noting and then we can continue on. I think there's times when we talk about calling and when I hear people talk about God calling me to something or calling me to live somewhere or calling me to work or what he's gifted me in, that we make that an incredibly subjective thing. And we think it's an impression we have or a feeling we have or a desire that we have and we, we cloak those things in language of calling. I think what we see here actually shows us biblically that a subjective feeling in and of itself isn't, isn't a, the fullness of God's call on you. It involves his, his people, his church. And so here, these men were identified by the church. You see that the apostle said, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. He's saying, look at their character first. We're going to evaluate character and see if that's the starting point for their fittedness for ministry. It wasn't their skill set. And said, all right, pick out seven men of of good repute, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. So they were called out by the church and identified by the church as being full of the Spirit and full of wisdom and having good character. They were presented to the leaders of the church and confirmed by them. They were commissioned then within the church into ministry. And it was based on character and the Spirit's work in and through them. So those are some criteria as we think about what it means to be called by God into something that will be helpful for us. So we're empowered to serve. First, we need to recognize the needs of the church and meet them. Second, we need to pursue unity in diversity. The unity of the church was being threatened here from Hellenistic Jews and Hebrew Jews. Same ethnic group, but a cultural divide that was brewing, and there was some tangible reason for that divide to be deepened. And so in that, the apostles call everybody together. They say, come together, we're going to come together, we're going to work through this together. And, and I love that it says, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and the rest, and prayed and laid hands on them. And so the church was able to come together. They were able to move into the tension together, lean into it together, have the discussion together, and then move ahead in unity together. This is a beautiful portrait of what it is to be the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the Apostle Paul says that, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same, it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so that in 1 Corinthians 12, it goes on to list all kinds of gifts that God gives people. And so what a passage like that is saying is that if you are a part of the family of God, if you are a part of then the manifestation of that family in a local church, You've been brought into that community. We are one body together and every single one of us is an essential part of this. And we are going to see the world differently from each other. We are going to have different interpretive lenses that, that we receive interactions and events. We are going to have, and we're going to have different skill sets and we, and we have a tendency to moralize our skill sets and gift sets, right? Those of you that are spontaneous and flexible are like, you look at people that are more structured and disciplined in their lives, and you're like, pah, you don't actually know how to enjoy life. People that have of you that are more disciplined and structured look at spontaneous and flexible people and you can have a tendency to moralize that and say, You're not actually, you don't actually care about accomplishing something in this life. You're, you know, we can moralize that and moralize our approach to spiritual disciplines and think this is the only way it can get done. We can do that even to our own, sh- sometimes it's not external, I, think, I feel like it's less the external overt stuff and it's probably more the internal shame that every one of us feels where we look at other people with other gifts and we think, gosh, well I can't do it like that. So I, I just suck and and we don't we don't think about the reality that God has gifted us differently but here's the thing we've been brought together this is this is the blood bought church of Jesus Christ and and he's the one who's brought us to this place together into this family together in this moment at this time in this place for his glory And we read in Ephesians 2, He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man taking the place of two, so making peace, might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In Him you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is the blood-bought body of Christ. When we come together in this place, the, it, unity is not just an issue of, of keeping the peace. Unity is an issue of saying Christ Himself died, and in His death, through His crucifixion, as His body was split and torn for us, what He was purchasing was He was He was abolishing the things that naturally divide us. He was He was tearing down dividing walls of hostility to bring us together in unity, not aliens and strangers, not outcasts, not marginalized from this body. That that at the cross we are all needy, and we are all welcomed into God's family, and so. In In this church, we need you, every one of you, with everything that you bring, with all the baggage you've got, with all the experiences that your life has walked you through, some that you expected and others that are devastating still. We need everything you bring to the table. We need need your ethnic and cultural background to come into this place the church is made more beautiful the more diverse that we are and the more we are able to show unity in that diversity we need we need your your different ideological backgrounds in this place In this city, at this time, there might be no more beautiful sign of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that people with completely opposed political ideologies are together weekly, worshipping together, crying on each other's arms, gathering in each other's homes and sharing meals in a community together, and that the dividing walls of hostility that are just so, so deeply entrenched in our nation have been obliterated by the cross because there's one king. We need, we need you to bring everything that you are in your background regionally and internationally to our church. I want recipes from your family table. I like to cook, and I'd, like to, and, and I'd love to see how things can come together. I, l- I want to I experience those things. We need your gifts and your skills. The Spirit has filled everybody that is a follower of Jesus and gifted you to be a contributor to build up the body of Christ. But here's the thing. He doesn't gift us for our own personal fame. He doesn't gift us for—the Spirit, the Spirit doesn't gift us as if it's some pathway to our own self-fulfillment, which is the only thing you gain by taking a spiritual gifts test. <laughs> it's how am I going to be fulfilled in how God has made me? It, fine, figure out who you are and then look at the needs that exist in the body that God has placed you in, and, and he will gift you to meet those needs. And so step in with us. And, but in that, we need to pursue unity in all of that diversity. There is not a lesser gift or a greater gift. We, we can tend to be tempted to spiritualize the apostles' work and calling and under-spiritualize administrative callings, but it takes the spirit to foster unity and maybe especially foster unity between communicators and administrators. Jess and I were laughing this week. Um, about this. Um, Jess is our director of operations. She did our welcome this evening and does almost every Sunday. And um, I don't know if you guys realize how much it took for her to get up here the first several weeks that we asked her to do that. I was like, I really want the church to know you and for you to be a regular presence for the church. And so I'd like you to welcome and give announcements every Sunday. She was like, broke into a cold sweat. (laughs) And But she does every week and she does a great job at it, but, but Jess loves doing stuff behind the scenes. Right now she really loves that I'm mentioning her in the sermon so that you're all looking at her. <laughs> Now, every once in a while, and we joked about this this week, and again, like, I joked this week, I was like, hey, Jess, you know, this is going to be a sermon about, like, the structures and administration of the church, so maybe you should get up and preach it, and she, again, like, cold sweat, no way, it's not her gift, and she doesn't want to do those things, and that's fine, but she is so gifted at so much in our church. Like there, is, like, there is not an area of this church that happens that she doesn't have her hands in somehow, and, and she has helped our church advance in so many areas organizationally and, and helped with the business side of Redemption Hill, and so there's a beauty that it takes a spirit-filledness for her to do that work well, and I think particularly in a church, people that think that if you've ever had a desire to work in the ministry or felt that calling, what happens so often when people feel that calling is they get into a church and and then they realize this is just a job most of the week. Like, we don't sit around and hold hands and sing every day. <laughs> now, we do pray together regularly, and I know most of you don't get that at work, and we do, like, we study the Bible together, but, but there's also a lot of the work that's just work. We're, we're working in a nonprofit corporation. And, and yes, there's eternal value to those things, but it is so easy to get so spiritually dry so quick working in the church. And so for Jess, she needs to be someone that is filled by the Spirit and full of wisdom and able to carry out her role in a way that glorifies Jesus. Brian is on our staff team and leads us on Sundays and leads our liturgy. I, I got to lead worship one time a few years ago um, because we were in between worship leaders and there was a chaotic Sunday and we realized if I don't do it, we just aren't going to have any songs. And so I did. I hit, got a guitar up here and, uh, and I led worship. And you are grateful, trust me, that we have someone else to do that job. <laughs> Could I do it? Maybe. <laughs> is it my gift? No. On the other hand, I am the, la- you know, I'm the last person that in the room, that in this room, that you want doing things like keeping a calendar. I don't know what it is that I can remember details of books that I read 15 years ago, but I cannot tell you what my appointments are tomorrow. Like, I literally just go where my phone tells me to go every single day. Um, and, and because I just can't, like, ongoing administrative details, catching details, that kind of work, I'm terrible at it. And so we, there need to be other people that are doing those things. So listen, you, every one of you, if you're a part of this church, you have been gifted by God to be a part of his work and filled by his spirit to accomplish it. And Don't elevate other people's gifts as more significant. Don't don't diminish people's gifts and, and downplay, don't downplay the work of the spirit through you. Jess pointed out to me today that the first Christian martyr was an admin named Stephen. We're gonna see his death next week. And so it wasn't the apostles that got the honor of being the first Christian martyr. It was one of these deacons. Listen, in our church, we talk about things, not hierarchically, but we like to think about things instead on a horizontal plane. That that God's gospel has been entrusted to faithful elders, qualified leaders in the church. Those elders appoint leaders to continue the work of ministry. Those leaders invest themselves into members of our church. Members of our church are gifted and filled by the Spirit to reach our city. Our hope is then that it will also be an attractional move that as the gospel goes out, that people in our city will come to know and follow Jesus and become members of our church, that members of our church will be trained up into leadership, and that qualified leaders will be trained into eldership. And so this is, when we think about things, this is the plane we're thinking about them on, is that we want, to, we want to be a part of the mission of God and the attraction of God. In all of this, we see here that they fought for unity in this early church, though. The devil couldn't cr- crush them through persecution. We saw that the devil couldn't succeed in infusing corruption into the inside the church, and so he went after their unity, and the Spirit preserved them. And so whatever your gift and place in our church, fight for its unity. Call sin what it is, and there will be times for godly confrontation, but fight for unity, pursue unity, and nothing will tear unity apart quicker than murmuring and grumbling and complaining together. Third, finally, do, the work, uh, do God's work in the Spirit's power. Again, everybody here was filled by the Spirit. It wasn't just the teachers that were filled by the Spirit. Everybody needed the Spirit to accomplish God's work. Francis Schaeffer was, he talked about the reality that most of us focus on things going out, gone outside of the church as being the real problems that we face. He said, no, the real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually and corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God and not in the circumstances surrounding them. And so this is a massive and terrible temptation. And I face this temptation all the time. Doing God's work in the power of the flesh rather than the power of the spirit. This is the, this is the most difficult temptation in church leadership and in serving on a church staff team. Um, this is, I, I face it on a weekly basis. Listen, I know a basic format and approach to build sermons that would get you to like me more as your pastor. Like, focus in on funny stories, make sure that some of the stories about, are about my family so that you get to know us, but not all of them so you don't feel like they're just my family. Have the right illustrations at the right time, have carefully worded, pithy things to say that are memorable and stick with you and you want to tweet out and then I see him on Twitter and I'm like, yeah, that was good. Like it is so easy to think about a formula to a TED style talk presentation. You can read books that have been written on how to preach in ways that move people and change people. You can study all of those things. And none of those things in and of themselves are bad. It's good to think about illustrations that illuminate God's truth in ways that will be memorable for you. It's good to do study into the text that illuminates the background and context of it so that you can understand things more clearly. It's good to have things worded memorably and to work on communicating excellently. All of those things are good right now some of you're like does he think he does all that that's, <laughs> that's okay but but here's the thing is that it is such a subtle thing that i get tempted toward to know how I can do those things, to gain a certain response, and, but I know that my motivation in that and what's going on in my heart is not that I have spent hours in prayer on my face before God asking for him to speak his word to his people, but times when I'm thinking about how do I craft this sermon in a way that will get their approval and I'm more focused on the approval of the people hearing me than I am on the approval of Christ. And it shows up because I'll be become more sensitive and attuned to every response. I'll leave, I'll step down from the platform and be running through my sermon in my head and thinking about, you, the, you know, I, I see all of you while I preach. <laughs> thinking about what, what was that person thinking at this moment? Why were, why were they on their phone then? Were they fact checking me? Like, <laughs> And if that happens, it can be subtle and hard to detect at times, but the symptoms that come up in me that I start to recognize is that when I'm I'm longing for the desire for your approval and that creeps in, no amount of encouragement can actually lift me and buoy my soul. And so when that happens, that's when I start to murmur myself and to grumble to make sure to make a sideways comment about somebody else, because if I can push down somebody's impression of somebody else, then it might elevate their impression of me in subtle ways. And we do this all the time. I don't think I'm alone in this. But if you find yourself in that kind of a place where your discontent keeps bubbling up, and you keep finding ways to cast shade on other people and other work and what's happening in the church, and there's nothing when you look around that you can celebrate and what God is doing in other people's lives, or at least you, you know that even when you do that, that you're doing it so that you fulfill the expectation they have that you'll be encouraging. That's, that's the key here, I think, and for us, that your soul may have gone dry. And that happens to me as a preacher at times when I know that I'm, I'm ministering and working and serving out of the power, out of my own abilities, not out of the power of the spirit, and it is draining and it is unsustainable. And you'll find yourself burnt out and tempted to grumble and gossip. And, it's, and if that's happening, that is God's check engine light in your life saying, wake up and slow down. On the other hand, when I find myself most reliant on the spirit, As a preacher, I am incredibly self-forgetful. It becomes worshipful to preach because I'm focused on Christ and talking about his glory. And if somebody has a sideways comment after a sermon, I'm like, instead of being like, well, yeah, I'm like, really? I, (laughs) I didn't even notice because I'm so caught up not in myself and what you're thinking about me, but caught up in Christ and the desire I have for you to turn to him. We've got to fight to do the work of God and the power of the Spirit, not just in the power of our flesh. And and, is, and God's work and calling will be more than we can handle. It will exhaust us at times. And Jesus himself withdrew to solitude and prayer. The apostles here were willing to say, hey, we've got to draw the line somewhere. This is important work, but we can't do it because it would take up our time for word and prayer. And so if that's you tonight, if you're feeling that kind of drain and that dryness of soul, if you've recognized in yourself that kind of a critical eye and complaining and grumbling spirit, don't wait on it. Work now. Manage your schedule and create space to go and find ways to access the presence of God. Create space in your life to actually cultivate prayerful dependence on him. Create space in your life to engage in his word. That doesn't mean you have to do it alone and in isolation. I think that we have that idea, this idea that that's how we do it. What we see in the New Testament church is that they were together doing those things. They were praying together. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching together. They were in each other's lives together. And so create space in your schedule and then lean into community. We, it's messy, but we cannot experience healing and wholeness and isolation. You see this, that when, when grumbling was coming up in this church, they didn't say like, okay, everybody go and figure this out, take a few days to pray about it, and then we'll come back together and you can share your thoughts. They said, hey, come on, <laughs> call everybody together. We're having a meeting about this. We're going to lean in together. We're going we're to work on this together. We're going to prayerfully approach this together. If, we, if you're feeling that dryness of soul, lean into community devote yourselves to God's word and to prayer. And, And having other gifts doesn't mean that any of us are exempt from those two things. And then realize your own limitations. God didn't make you unlimited, but he did fill you with his spirit if you're in Christ. So, in all of this, we see in the text today, this is a trellis text, it shows us the, the structures that were being built in the early church, and in Christ the Spirit of God fills us and empowers us to serve alongside each other. It shows us how, how, to, how to cultivate so that the continued work of that growing vine continues to, to flourish. And the church is a body and a family, it's not a show to come and spectate, and the more time our elders and leaders have for the word and prayer, the more effective they will be in leading the church. If your gift is to do other ministry, do it empowered by the Spirit so the elders can be free to do what they're called to do. And the more likely it is then that we experience the fruit of verse 7. Do you see what it says? The Word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Redemption Hill, God is doing some beautiful things in and through this church. Don't fall into the trap of grumbling. It is a threat to the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. Instead, let's lean in together. Let's recognize needs and meet them. Let's, let's pursue unity and diversity, and let's do the work of God in the Spirit's power alongside each other. And we need every one of you. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need your help. We need your Spirit to empower us and fuel us. I want to pray right now for everyone that's in this place and for our entire church That those who are feeling that dryness of soul and and feeling the temptation to grumble and murmur that you would breathe life in this moment that you would help them to create margin and space in their lives to be fueled by your presence, that you would, you would help our church family to come around them in unexpected ways to be able to, to be a part of the life-giving waters of Christ welling up within them. Father, would you help us as a church family to move ahead to together in unity and to pursue unity hard together? Help us to not give up the center of Christ in the gospel in this church. And pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.